My memory is certainly in my hands. I can remember things only if I have a pencil and I can write with it and I can play with it. When anything important has to be written, yes, I think your hand concentrates for you. I don't know why it should be so. That was Rebecca West. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is The Midnight Disease. W-A-L-T, it's The Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Geffel M930 via the Avitus MA5, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500. Analog tones on the Golden Channel on a Tuesday morning in the Moon Cabin. Folks, that quote that I just read you is from this extraordinary volume that... If you ever see it out in the world, I would recommend picking up. It's called The Writer's Chapbook, a compendium of fact, opinion, wit, and advice from the Paris Review interviews. And flipping through it is a big part of where I got the idea to do this show that I hope you've been enjoying. If you have or if you haven't, send me a note. Midnight at WALT.FM is the email address. I would love to know what you'd like to hear more of and what you'd like to hear less of. One of the things that I think really speaks to me about these little pearls of wisdom that are in the writer's chapbook, of which there are very, very many. This book is uh, about 300 pages long, and it's all little quotes like that. It's... Wisdom from writers who have sat down at the desk every day to confront the disease and have come up with a little treatment, a little elixir that if they, if they do that practice, if they, to go with what Rebecca said, trust the hands and the pencils, they get a little closer to peace. Um, they, the, the disease is, is quieted in some way. And fundamentally, probably, the quest for a practice like that, the quest for a ritual, a communion of some kind, for me at least, has to do with the sense that by making something meaningful, I will leave some kind of important mark on the fabric of the universe. And that that matters because I'm afraid of dying. Right? I mean, that's, to, that's what a lot of this stuff comes down to, is how do I make sense of the fact that I am here at all and that cosmically that seems to matter so little, and yet everything that I do matters so much to me and everything that I experience and everything that I see and everything that I feel. It matters so much, and I need to put that mattering somewhere. And for artists, I think that's why we write, draw, make podcasts, etc. And today on the show, I am talking to an illustrator whose work engages with this idea in a very direct way. 
Her name is Sarah Richard, and Sarah's work, how to describe it? When you look at it, which you can do uh, at her Instagram, Sarah Richard Art, link in the show notes, of course, you will find this work that catches your heart is the best way that I can explain it. Instantly, right when you look at it. Because what Sarah does is she draws figures and worlds that, to my interpretation, seem to originate from the world around and beneath the cemetery. So she's very interested in gravestones. She's very interested in the insect life that crawls in the grass and foliage around the gravestones, that lives in the dirt beneath the graves. She's very interested in the flora and fauna that occupy that environment. And she's very interested in the question of what the existence of the beings beneath the earth is, it seems to me. And that sounds heavy, I realize, as I'm describing it, but it's not. Because what Sarah does that I have not seen too many other artists do is she renders in color and form a vision of that environment that is full of passion and reflection and shimmer and color. There's a lot of bright colors. Describing that world, you, you might conjure a, a feeling of, of gloom or darkness or shadows. Um, and those things are present in her work sometimes. But by and large, Sarah's work seems to kind of shimmer or glow. And her subjects in her illustrations seem to be existing in a world that has just as much mystery and playfulness and yearning and emotion and empathy and mystery as our world. So it's not that the world beyond the veil contains the answers to the mysteries, it seems. It's just that there are different mysteries awaiting us there and that the beings there have questions about the world back here as much as we have questions about them. And I hope what's coming across in all of this is that Sarah's work is not cartoonish or naive in any sense. It's not as though she's trying to make light of something to avoid taking it seriously. It's more that she's considering an alternative interpretation of it. And there is something so winsome about that, I think is the adjective I would use. It's not that it, it brings me calm necessarily or peace. It's intriguing. It's a world I would love to inhabit. Not to say I'm in a rush to get there, but it makes me think about the possibility that the world beyond the veil might not be something that I have to brace myself for, but actually might be a world that I have the emotional vocabulary for, even if I don't yet speak the language. I was first made aware of Sarah's work because 
we connected in the early days of the Family Ghosts podcast. And if you've ever listened to the Family Ghosts podcast, which I've, I've told you about before, it's a show that I used to do that is not explicitly about ghosts in the supernatural sense. But it is about people who have passed on from this world and yet still linger here. They are in the words of the Wood Brothers song that inspired that podcast, still close. And I think Sarah and I connected initially because that idea is something that seems very alive in Sarah's illustrations. The idea that this world and the next are close to each other, that there is not a vast chasm between them, and that in fact, Whatever the divide between them is, it's something that it might not be so terrifying to look across. And that if we can take that step, whether we are on this side or the other, we might value our time in whichever place we're in a little bit more by daring to regard the other. I enjoyed this conversation with Sarah so much, and if you're listening to it and you're finding yourself wanting to dive into her work... She has a lot of really amazing projects. Um, the one that I have most tangible connection with is called Midnight Magic. And it's a deck of tarot cards uh, where each card for the various, I don't even know what these things are called, Arcana, the images on a more traditional Rider weight deck of tarot cards have been replaced by illustrations of mushrooms and elements of the forest. And I pull one of these cards every Sunday to set an intention for the week. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that the practice of engaging with the values in Sarah's work at the beginning of every week makes me open my eyes a little bit wider, listen a little bit more closely and breathe a little bit more deeply. And I hope that this conversation encourages you to do the same on WALT. Sarah Richard, welcome to The Midnight Disease. Thank you very much for having me. The question that I always like to start with is if you think about the phrase The Midnight Disease and you imagine your creative practice, can you paint a picture for us of Sarah Richard in the throes of The Midnight Disease? What does that look like? Oh, man. I've actually been going to bed much earlier than midnight than I oh. used to. So let's see, maybe like the 1030 disease, <laughs> <laughs> old lady mode. Um, well, lately I've been getting into every sort of weird tomato I can find. So okay. I am just constantly like checking my plants for every little blemish and trying to just helicopter mother them. Uh -huh. But it does give me a chance to sort of like reset my mind a little bit mm. so if I'm kind of working on a project right now I'm working on a coloring book 
And it's kind of open-ended in that I get to choose, you know, um, like flower layouts and, and animals put into it. It's, it's giving, gives me a lot of um, free space to kind of do whatever I want. Um, and I'll kind of maybe hit a little bit of a, a roadblock, flower petals not working out. Like uh-huh. I can't wrap my head around like uh-huh. how to draw a Cosmo or something. <laughs> um, I'll just kind of go over to to some of my plants that I've been growing. I'm trying hydroponics, so okay. playing with pH levels, you know, just being a little weird scientist, I guess, <laughs> right now. And it, it's a really nice kind of meditative little little break. Has growing food or growing things always been a fascination, or is this a newer thing? Yeah, I, uh, I, I've always kind of had a, a little bit of a growing food interests. My dad has a really nice garden. Um, and, and I've always, you know, I was always out there kind of picking tomatoes and being chased by a turkey. And mm-hmm. like we had turkeys that would chase me and my brother <laughs> around. Um, but I'm doing so much like, um, like green witch projects right now. So it's like, I kind of want to get more um, familiar with like how flowers are put together and you know how leaves oh. you know are the veins opposite each other um staggered Interesting. or are the branches staggered so it's it's kind of like you know I tried everything I do I kind of want to learn from so it is it is gently related to your illustration yeah. work yeah definitely that's that's really interesting what is a green witch project forgive me for not knowing Sure. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> right now I'm working on a few projects for Simon and Schuster. So there's a Greenwich coloring book. There's like a Greenwich Oracle card set. It's it's mostly just you know like kind of looking at the natural world and and especially like your own garden. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. anything too too huge or anything. Um, but yeah, just kind of looking at plants and what they might symbolize to you and and how. And, and reflecting on how you feel spiritually, I guess. Um, wow. You know, working with plants and um, what you can kind of learn from them. So it strikes me hearing you say that, that you're you're doing, and this is a crude use of this term, but um, it's like the whatever the method acting equivalent of illustration is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, definitely. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like I, I did a Norse mythology book too, and I just like blew through all the Vikings, uh-huh, like tried uh-huh. to watch every single Viking thing I could get my hands on, watch the Northmen. And like, it's it's also like inspiration for me too. So I'll, I'll put on Viking music, uh, you know, and if, when I was listening, when I was working on the Greek mythology one, same thing. I would have to imagine that then means that those points of inspiration find their way into your work in exciting ways. Like you mentioned the the veins on the leaves. Yeah. Um, and now I'm envisioning your eventual illustrations for that project, highlighting the veins in a way that um, might not have been there had you not actually done the work of growing your own tomatoes. Yeah, totally. And also it's like, um, I've, I've had um, little frogs show up in some of my outdoor garden stuff. I put them in some of my projects too. So everything is, you know, if I'm inspired by something that day, drawing it kind of reminds me of finding that little little dude who made my day. He's, he's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also uh, can't let us go any further without going back to the idea that you grew up being chased by turkeys. Um, yeah. <laughs> Please tell me more about this. Uh, it was a really uh, foundational <laughs> of my adult life. Um, yeah, I grew up. Uh, in, I grew up in New Hampshire, and you know, as a kid, had uh, like chickens, bunnies. Uh, we had two turkeys, um, Pete and Repeat. <laughs> and <laughs> Repeat didn't last for too long. Uh, she was sick, but Pete turned into a monster turkey and would chase me and my brother around the yard. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he would actually follow us to the school bus and then turn around and go back home. So like I grew up 
with a Rottweiler and she was not our guard animal. It was the turkey who <laughs> was the guard animal. Um, so yeah, it, it was a fun New Hampshire keeping yourself entertained in the woods kind of deal. <laughs> yeah. Well, so tell me if this is an overreach, but one of the things that I respond to very much about your work is the marvels of the natural world are always very present. Um, mm-hmm. And and there's often a sense of your your subjects sort of blending or being enmeshed with the natural world. Do you agree with that characterization? And do you think it is a result of growing up with such a direct connection to flora and fauna and wildlife? Yeah, yeah. I, I was actually kind of thinking about this the other day. Like, somebody asked me how to describe my art. And since I've kind of gotten obsessed with, like, mycology and mushrooms, like, uh-huh. I've started to kind of see it as almost like, this sounds so <laughs> weird, but, like, like, the mycelium of a mushroom creates communication between different trees use mycelium as a way to communicate mm-hmm. with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the kind of the underground part of a mushroom. Um, so I thought of, you know, all the lines and, and swirls that I put in my art as sort of kind of like that, like bits of the, the image kind of communicating with other parts of the image and sort of a really flowy, cohesive, I guess, like um, the way that makes everything feel like it's connected. So, yeah, um, yeah I just, I, I enjoy just being out in nature and, mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. just kind of comes through in my art, I guess. Yeah. yeah I, I don't think that, that your reflection on mycelium doesn't sound weird at all. It's, it's Ooh, quite lovely actually. And to think you. about recognizing some beautiful element of the natural world and then also recognizing that it actually serves this very beautiful unseen purpose that yeah. once you reckon with gives you a deeper appreciation of the thing yeah it's like i just anything i draw anything i get into i get really obsessed with so i want to learn everything about it so yeah i know it's just a very planty green sort of mindset i guess but yeah so uh i have a pet theory about art that i would like to share with you and then i have a follow-up question which is that uh, i think music and illustration are the two closest art forms to sorcery <laughs> yeah, yeah. that exist because one, and this is all just my own subjective opinion, but uh, there's two reasons I feel that way. One is they are the thing that when someone can do it, it is the most marvel inducing to others. Like when someone can just sing it just boggles people. It it, it humbles yeah. them. It, it's to be in the presence of it is just so extraordinary. And the same with a musical instrument. And and similar with drawing, when someone can reproduce the world on a piece of paper, people watch people who can do that and they feel intense feelings. You know, when people start singing, people start crying. When um, I have very vivid memories of people who were visual artists when I was in school, the kids who could draw would draw something and other kids would come over and they would want to take it. They would want to take the drawing from them because they're like, I think the sub, the subconscious reaction to it was, how did you do that? I, I want to be able to do that. How did you make this tangible thing that I wish I could do? You, you somehow found a way to capture the confusion of existence on a page. How did you do that? Um, 
So all of that is my long-winded and clumsy way of saying I have great admiration <laughs> for what you do. Um, Thank you. And I wonder when you first felt, if you remember, the first mm. time you felt the the urge to try to capture something on a page and when you realized it was something that you you could do. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. I guess I remember probably kindergarten. Um, you know, I I was drawing something or other and I just remember my teacher like being like that's that's really good and I brought it home. My mom said that's really good. And my little brain was like, "Oh, sweet. Okay, pattern there. I'm doing something right." Uh-huh, so, uh-huh. um yeah, I would just I, I would find that I could draw things better than I could explain them. That's coming very clear right now. <laughs> um, that's so very interesting. I remember, yeah, yeah. Like I would have ideas for, you know, characters and stories and I I tried to explain them and it would never, I would just be long-winded, but I could draw exactly what I wanted to huh. get across. So um, I think it was before I even knew how to spell, I was drawing, you know, like bugs and, and worms and stuff. And I remember drawing a worm like an earthworm. And then I wrote worm under it and I wasn't sure I was spelling it right, but I knew I was drawing it right. And then there was, um, my dad kind of let me draw an ocean scene on my bedroom wall. So I had a whole room sketched out with killer whales and dolphins and seals. And it sort of made sense to me that I could create like a world that I wanted to be in if I was, Uh you know, like lonely or bored or, you know, Christmas for me was always like my cousins would come over and they'd hang out with my brother. And then before I was old enough to hang out with the adults, you know, all the adults would hang out. So I was kind of just like left in this weird, like, Mm. I guess I'll go draw Mm -hmm. then. So like, that's just one of the many (laughs) things where art kind of helped me pass some time, I guess, and not feel super awkward. But I think it comes down to like artists and singers can create something out of nothing. Yes. I mean, isn't that what alchemy kind of is too? Mm -hmm, You know, like mm -hmm. it's a very cool sort of deep, like timeless thing. Like some people can and some people can't. And you can learn, but there's always this thing from somebody who's just been born to sing or born to draw. And like, I can't think of anything else that I want to do or could be doing. And it's funny, too, because like art and music go so close together. Like I have to have music on when I'm drawing and that music has to be in the mood of what I am drawing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's it, it's it's very interesting to think about in your work in particular, because there are often so many visual elements that are combined in in your work. So the idea that nested with it and, and that often comes across as you are illustrating something very complex. You're illustrating a world that exists between this one and the unknown one. And so, of course, yeah. there would be a lot of visual elements. So the idea that some of those things are, it feels weird to say concrete in this context, but concrete things that would be present in such an in-between space. And some of them are little Easter eggs that are just for you. Yeah. And I like to make something, too, that's always different each time that you look at it. And like I'll even forget stuff that I put in there sometimes. And I would love, 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 love to do an illustrated like murder ballad book or like oh, that's an, an incredible folk idea. Song. Yeah, it's it's you know I want to do it. I just um, with all the licensing and stuff. But they're, if they're old timey right, right. songs, it it might be workable. So, but 
Yeah. <laughs> would read. Well, that's a perfect segue because you said something incredible in an interview that I listened to, and I would love to hear more about what you meant, which is that you were talking about watching Nickelodeon as a kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And recognizing that... You know, it oftentimes it was sort of broad comedy and bright colors and r- ridiculous premises, but that there was always something very kind of serious and adult lurking in the yeah. background. Can you, can you say more about what you mean by that? And, and maybe specifically a Nickelodeon show where you noticed that? Uh, yeah. So I, my brother and I would watch Ren and Stimpy every Snick, Saturday Night Nick, but Ren and Stimpy regardless of all the stuff that's come out about that, yeah, just yeah. the cartoon though being super like bright and happy and is on Nickelodeon. Mm-hmm. But then you get to like some of the weird close-ups and some of the like horrible things of like, call the police, yeah. you know, like yeah. the walrus, uh-huh. like all that kind of hidden stuff that they were so creative with kind of like sneaking past in a very creative way to like, I, you know, maybe appeal to older viewers mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. the parents who have to sit through the cartoons that they're watching with their kids, mm-hmm. kind of like like Shrek's done this. And yeah, but I think that kind of really put in a real sense of like I want to do that. I want to be able to be not sneaky, but like to like have something that on the surface is one way, but when you look at it closer and maybe have a different context, it's something else. So it's mm-hmm, it's kind of mm-hmm. like why I like to draw such creepy things, but kind of give them like a sweet sort of undertone to it, like cemeteries, but like maybe a sweet little vignette of like someone interacting with like a spooky little desiccated hand coming up. But like the hand is a gentle like gesture instead of you know like a horror kind of pull you back down to the grave thing which i love as well yeah yeah. (laughs) it doesn't speak to me as much as kind of like looking at something and giving it a chance i guess you know looking at something and giving it a chance what a beautiful phrase what a beautiful phrase (laughs) well and you're not going to believe this and i i feel kind of silly doing this but i have to read you exactly what i wrote down to ask you I said, sure. there seems to be in your work this recurring, I can't believe I'm reading you the question I wrote in my journal. I'm just going to do it. it. <laughs> there seems to be in your work this recurring idea that things we are taught to fear might not be so bad. And in fact, that they might be sort of charming and delightful. Mm-hmm. It strikes me as very similar to what you said, like looking at something and giving it yeah. a chance. Yeah. Do you have a sense of of where that comes from or where you felt that for the first time, that idea that this, if I gave this thing a chance, maybe I could find something inviting or or delightful about it that isn't as scary as other people might find it? Yeah, um, I guess a few years ago, uh, I started really getting into um, gravestone cleaning with my mom. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we'd be spending a lot of time in a cemetery. uh, And when I tell people like, oh yeah, for fun, me and my mom go to cemeteries (laughs) to clean gravestones. (laughs) They're like, for free? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's it's nice. And it would just, the confused look on everyone's face (laughs) who didn't quite gel with the macabre. Uh Uh, Uh It was was really interesting. And it kind of reminds me of all like the like the death positivity movement and like mm-hmm. I, I'm a huge fan of uh, Caitlin Doty, like ask mortician girl and mm-hmm. or a woman rather. And uh, so, you know, seeing the expression of people when I say like, yeah, it's a real death positive 
activity. They're like, oh, what do you mean? Like you're excited to die? You like death? And it's like, no, it's just talking about it is destigmatized and and we should all feel a little bit more open to doing that uh-huh. instead of being, oh, spooky girl hangs out in cemeteries. Right, you know? right, right. But, you know, with that, you're taking care of a stone of a family or like a person whose family doesn't come see them anymore. Like mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. go to the stones that really, really, really need some help. You know, they're covered right. in lichen. You can't read who's on there anymore. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people too, they only have that stone as their record. So mm. keeping that in mind, it's like you really feel like you're doing something so good and it just makes you feel so good after, you know, like spending a lot of time in a cemetery. You see, you know, people with their with their relatives and back in the day they used to have picnics in cemeteries too to hang out with whoever died and that's such a sweet bygone <laughs> you know activity like mount auburn cemetery was a park people would go to to have picnics and and you know hang out at the gravesite and i mean people still do that but it's it's just more of a victorian culture kind of thing i guess um yeah, but and and they had such an uh, an honor for their dead too, like creating artwork for their dead and creating like these memorial cards that are black and gold and like you know I see something related to like a, a funerary piece of artwork and and all I see from that is just caring and um, honor, you know. So I kind of try to put that into my art too, I guess, or I kind of keep that mindset as well as just. On the surface, it's it's dark and spooky, but there's just so much more to it. Absolutely. Well, it it reminds me of this phrase you have on your website: uh, "Bravery facing mortality." Um, yeah, yeah. And the way you're describing it, it's almost like this idea that by giving yourself permission to approach this unknown thing mm-hmm. from a standpoint of they're in a part of the story that I, we just don't know about yet. Yeah. Um, and isn't the unknown like really, really terrifying slash amazing, you know? <laughs> it's very terrifying. And, and you're making me think yeah. that one of the things that, well, I'll just speak personally. One of the things that yeah. scares me the most is the idea of loss, losing mm-hmm. somebody who is in my life once they die or me losing access to the things in my life that I care about when I die. And what you're mm-hmm. implying is the idea that that relationship could actually continue that there's a loss of the relationship as you currently understand it. Right. But the way you're talking about it is like looking at it as just, what if it just becomes a different kind of relationship where you make these artifacts and um, these, uh, and you spend time with people in, in the place where you last knew their earthly form and right. what kind of new relationship could come out of doing that. And that, I've never thought about any of this before until this moment, but it's such a beautiful idea. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, too, like I am absolutely terrified of losing, you know, like my mom, my dad, I'm super close with them. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, that initial grief is, is, I imagine is terrible. Like I've lost, you know, friends and it really, really hurts. It's really, really heavy. But if you can kind of get into the idea of like, this isn't a goodbye, it's not a complete cut off from this person like it's really helpful I've I've made paintings in the past um of a friend you know or even if I lose a pet like I'll mix their ashes into the paints you know and like I've made (laughs) paintings like that and it is a really nice way to kind of come to terms where you're like I am working with you know my friend's ashes or or my pet's ashes yeah 
and you are realizing that they are there in that form now, but you're thinking while you're doing that of all the stories and all like the fun times you had. And, and it's a really nice kind of like meditative sort of, um, just coming to terms with things. I just watched a video where some girl had uh, her father died, but was a, a scientist and wanted his skeleton donated to the, the university, or he was a teacher, the university that he taught at. And she was able to get his skeleton back and she went on a road trip with it. So she was able to really come to terms. She's in the car driving her dad's skeletons in the back, just chilling. She's like roller skating with her dad's skeleton in a chair around a, a roller rink. And I'm sure some people will be horrified by that, but it's like, looking at the situation, mm-hmm. horrifying as it might seem on the sur- surface, and then seeing how this is really helping her come to terms with the sudden loss of her father. Yeah. You know, you're making me think, um, when my grandmother died, to me, she was this absolute angel that walked the earth. There was no mm-hmm. one sweeter than her, no one kinder. That's how my mm-hmm. dad thought of her. That's how one of my dad's brothers also thought of her. She was the picture of patience, um, yep. the the picture of, awesome. <laughs> of empathy. She was just incredible. Yeah. My dad's oldest brother, his nickname for her was the General. Um, in <laughs> in his in his narrative of what it was like to relate to her, it was always everything was always an argument and mm-hmm. just butting heads all the time. And and I just never understood how he could have had this experience with her. But I do also have the sense, and I'm speculating a little bit here, that um, they never really talked about any of it in the way that you're describing. Say you and your mom talk about what others might think of as the scariest possible stuff, the most taboo, verboten thing. And when my grandmother died, Uncle Rob, the one who called her the general, Mm -hmm. took her ashes and put them in the trunk of his car. And he drove around with them in the trunk of his car for two years. And my dad and his other brother, to my knowledge, they didn't say anything about it. They were just, it, it seemed like their attitude was, Rob and mom need to spend some time together. Yeah. And eventually we had a memorial service and we buried her ashes and it was very lovely. And it w- mm-hmm. the trunk was not discussed, but yep. I really like to think that they had some, they finally had some meaningful time together that they couldn't for whatever reason in this, in, in, when they were both in human bodies. Absolutely. It's so easy for somebody to be like, well, that's weird, but you know, maybe for a particular person, like you have that quietness to finally get out what you want to talk about. You have that reflection time to kind of put your thoughts in order. And even just sitting beside a, like an actual urn, you know, like you come to terms with like this, I know who's in there. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, as long as it's not like crazy, illegal, or dire, like right. horrible to the memory of the person, you know, it's everyone does their own, does their own thing, does their own ritual, does their own, you know, um, acceptance, I guess. I'm tempted yeah. to think of your work as a kind of invitation to consider this, these ideas. Yeah. Do you, do you think yeah, of it that like way? This, a little bit. Like I try to do, you know, like I love horror. I love spooky stories. I love like what our society says is a creepy sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then by adding that kind of that kind of element of of sweetness or an interaction between two supposedly spooky things in a in a drawing, 
that can be recognized as something sweet mm-hmm. and like two people maybe reaching up out of the grave and like holding each other's hands like that's a that's a sweet mm-hmm. sentimental thing regardless of of what the subject matter is yeah so by putting it into kind of like a macabre palette and shades and shades of macabre i guess Mm -hmm. (laughs) that'll be my autobiography (laughs) um um, yeah i kind of i kind of hope that sort of breaks through any stigma that you know like graveyard related things have or funerary things um might conjure up to certain people so sarah i'm really tempted to ask you in this moment what is your relationship to fear, because as you're talking about this, it strikes me that you, and I don't want to be too grandiose, but it's like you have, you've conquered the the great existential dread that most of us walk around in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's honestly the, the fear of the unknown, I think mm. is the scariest thing to me. And, you know, trying to draw what I think might okay. be what's beyond kind of helps, I guess, mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I know it's idealized and I know it's, you know, like poetic to what it is in reality, Mm -hmm. but it helps me kind of like put aside that, oh God, is it just going to be blackness? Oh my gosh, am I just not going to exist anymore? Am I not going to be able to communicate while I can and while I have the ability to draw out maybe nice, you know, beautiful story scenarios? And Mm -hmm. and it just kind of helps me deal with that, I guess. Plenty more to come in my conversation with Sarah Richard right here on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You are listening to WALT. So do you remember when you first, these ideas and the desire to address them through illustration, do you remember when that started? I mean, I I remember always kind of coming up with like characters and little vignette stories. Like I've always really liked um, Edward Gorey's work. Mm -hmm. I love how Mm -hmm. like succinct and short and open-ended like his stories are. So you, you aren't like dictated to an ending. You get to kind of come up with your own possibilities and ending, Uh which is the unknown. And I love it. Yeah. But also with like scary stories to tell in the dark too, like Mm -hmm. really short little stories that allow you to kind of continue the story after you're done reading it or like filling in all the blanks. Um, And I just always kind of wanted to create my own characters and my own little, like uh, little landscapes of where I'd want to go and be in that sort of situation, maybe like a spooky little graveyard or like a, this little forest, like a spooky forest. Like maybe mm-hmm. I would forget what I was even going for drawing that and it would, you know, I would color in so many dark spots and I'd just be like, well, what could be, what could be in there? Huh. If I'm hearing you right, even before mm-hmm. you would have maybe contextualized this in the terms that we've been talking about, about mm-hmm. death and what lies beyond the veil and stuff, you had an understanding of yourself that you were drawn to the open-endedness of a certain kind of illustration yeah. and wanted to replicate that. 
Right. Like kind of set a little scene, maybe like have it as sort of a thumbnail for a story idea. Mm-hmm. I never really thought of it, actually. Maybe that's what I was going for <laughs> without realizing. <laughs> so what about, I've also heard you say that anime was a huge yeah. <laughs> influence on you. What was it about anime that you were drawn to? Ah, oh, man. I well, So I was mainly addicted to Dragon Ball Z when I was a kid. Uh I like, I always wanted to be able to fly. So any like flying, like angel people, like um, uh, Escaflone was another favorite of mine too, because like all the pretty angel people in that. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. so I was just obsessed with the idea of like wanting to be able to fly. And there was just so many characters that could fly and have magic powers. And the art was so like, so flashy that I just was so drawn to it. And that's maybe probably why I put a lot of bright colors and a lot of my stuff still too it's mm-hmm. a lot of the influence from there um but yeah i would always like to watch the the anime horror like horror anime too and just and see how you could make you know like the big-eyed kind of like silly goofy characters also be kind of super scary sometimes too by just yeah. you know angling things a certain way and like angling a face down a certain way or, mm-hmm. or the shading in a scene and are there any elements of your current style as you would articulate it that you can draw or draw is a weird word to use, I guess, that <laughs> that you feel like are are a direct remnant of your own or initial imitations of anime? Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely hands. Um, mm-hmm. For a while I was drawing hands with kind of like, um, I caught on to this one image of this, this one anime illustration where they made the lines between the fingers kind of blend together. So they, mm-hmm. they kind of made it look like they had almost like four fingers, but the middle and the ring finger were close enough where you could just add in a suggestion that there were two fingers there. So it just, it was a simplified way to draw hands um, that I just latched onto mm-hmm. for a bit. Cause I, I love doing gestural hands and hands are so hard to draw. <laughs> like I'm yeah. still by no means, feeling like I'm an expert on hands yet, even though I did like a whole book about little hands or whatever, Uh you know, Uh but yeah, definitely drawing the hands. And then, um, I couldn't get out of how to draw eyes by not looking anime for the longest time. Uh It was Uh so hard trying to draw, you know, like a realistic eye just seems so foreign to me because there's like, there's so many details that get, you know, uh, just for animation purposes stripped away to make everything as simple as possible to, mm-hmm. to animate. And it was, you know, I, I still kind of find myself every once in a while kind of seeing a little bit of an anime mm-hmm. eye influence mm-hmm. come in or, or, um, or like a nose, um, the proportions for sure. That's another thing too, is like, I draw really long stretched out people all the time, but uh-huh. Uh-huh. that also kind of goes to like, I love art deco and art nouveau too. So, um, those all kind of mesh together and I love like a long ethereal, figure your work often incorporates swirls um and like the sense that the air is moving and Mm -hmm. it makes me think of that that kind of stereotypical anime image that i think most people listening to this can picture where (laughs) there's a static figure moving slowly towards the screen and then there's visual movement (laughs) in the foreground thank you i've learned about myself on this too (laughs) no that makes sense though I also heard you say in an interview once that you said, draw every day. And I'm wondering, do you still draw every day? And how long have you been drawing every day? And part of the reason I ask this question is, one of the things that I used to do to myself as an artist is beat myself up that um, I wasn't 
playing music every day or I wasn't mm -hmm. um, drawing every day or I wasn't uh, memorizing a monologue from a play every day. And I would think, well, how could I, how will I ever become an actor or a musician or a, a whatever if I'm not doing that thing every day? And then I realized that there was something I was doing every day, which was recording um, yeah. and trying to see if I could imitate the sounds of various radio shows and things like that. And I mm -hmm. thought, oh, I guess, I guess I am doing something every day. I just didn't even realize, I didn't even realize it was happening because I was so fixated on this other thing I was supposed to be doing. I thought I was supposed yeah. to be doing. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering, was your journey towards drawing every day similar? So I went to Columbus College of Art and Design mm -hmm. and basically freshman year, they're like, if you are not, working, you're useless. <laughs> so <laughs> that was like pumped into our head pretty early is to just like become a workhorse, <laughs> mm -hmm. like an artistic workhorse. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I do draw every day. Um, I haven't really been able to do much drawing for myself lately, just between deadlines. I yeah. mean, after I get done a project of drawing something every day for hours and hours and hours, I'm exhausted. Yeah. And, you know, either my arm's starting to hurt again, like I had tendonitis a few years ago and that I never want to go through that again. That's actually what I tell a lot of young artists too, is take care of your arm. Like, please do yeah. arm stretches. Please, you know, look what happens when you have to get a carpal tunnel surgery because that will put you off of that so fast. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, you know, you also have to give yourself a little bit of slack too. Like, if you don't feel like drawing that day, yeah. it is going to be such a frustrating thing because nothing's going to come out the way you want it to. You're going to spend so much time working on a thing you're not going to be happy with. And if that's the case, put it aside, you know, don't throw anything away. Don't throw away any old drawings or any old lyrics or, or prose or whatever. Put it aside and just wait till you can come back around. Because sometimes like that headspace that you're in gives you that little nugget of mm -hmm. gold. Plus then if you kind of forget that you drew it and you're looking for ideas later, like you need to kind of come up with something, you almost feel like you're stealing from yourself <laughs> when you do see something you've drawn in the past that you're, that you're, you know, you're really gelling with right. either a, a year later or like years later. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's just kind of cool sometimes when you create something that wasn't meant to be made right then. Yeah. Cause it came from you. So, you know, it's just a part of you that needs to find a whole, a little puzzle to fit back into, I guess. Yeah. It's, I mean, not to, force this but there is a connection there back to our conversation about death right like yes. the that thing that you made that you were attempted to discard and throw away and make part of the mm -hmm. past if mm -hmm. you instead invite it to be part of this continuum that you don't yet fully understand yeah. it, it may have things to offer you you just weren't ready to receive yet right and it's kind of cool too to like even if you're doing say like a painting or something of a of you know, either a memorial portrait for somebody or even just any regular illustration. Like, it sounds kind of hoarder-y, but like <laughs> keeping even the palette, if, especially if it's something really, really important to you, like a really important drawing, like keeping every step that you use to make that final piece is a really cool little like behind the scenes thing that you create for yourself. Mm -hmm. So even like keeping all the thumbnail sketches, all the, even like if you're doing acrylics or, or you know, keep the, the palette paper or take a picture of the palette that you were using. And just so you kind of create like a whole picture behind a picture for yourself. Yeah. And um, yeah. But then you got to figure out how to store all that stuff away. And it's, it's a whole other thing. Oh yeah. That's, that's for a different podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Pra practical. Anxiety in an artist's mind. Yeah. Yeah. Pra I, I yeah. did. One thing that does come up often in these conversations, as I'm sure you will appreciate, is 
everybody's always apologizing for their messy studio space. Right. Um, yeah. And it's like, I, I don't know. I've, I've never met an artist who had a, a clean studio. I'm about to sound so judgmental. I've never yeah, met an yeah. artist who had like a clean, well-ordered studio whose work I liked. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, then you go like, do you actually work in here? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. This is a place yeah. for ideas and impulses to converge. So it makes sense that yeah objects are converging in haphazard ways. <laughs> right. Like, say you're working on something and you're like, uh, you weren't, you have all your paints that you think you're going to use. And then you keep finding new, like I used to work in acrylics. So I like, I have a bunch of those little crafty acrylics everywhere. Mm-hmm. I just keep grabbing them, put them to the side. Like by yeah. the time I was done, I created this whole little fortress of like <laughs> acrylic paints everywhere. And yeah, it's kind of messy, but at least I know where everything is. And then, yeah. you know, in, in a way, mm-hmm it's reachable. And in that way, if you're in a groove, like working on something, you don't have to stop and then go find that thing again. It's all reachable. And, you know, it's... Yeah. A very formative story in my mind is my mom is an artist. And she told me about a friend of hers once who uh, is also an artist. And he would go into his studio every couple of months and sharpen a bunch of pencils. And then he would stand in the middle of the studio and just throw them all around all over the place. He would just fling them in every direction so that no matter where he was after that point, he would know if I just bend down or look around, there will be a sharpened pencil and I can just grab it and use it for whatever I'm trying to do right now. And I don't have to think like, oh, let me go get a pencil and sharpen it. I just know there will be one in the ether somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea. I love that idea until I think about stepping on one and then my whole fear of stepping on sharp objects (laughs) comes right on back. Right. (laughs) But I love that idea. So speaking of, of process, um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, is there, you, you, so you are somebody who works in a lot of different styles and, and mediums. You do fine art, you mm-hmm. do illustration, you do work for clients, you do work for yourself. Um, and I watched this video of you doing um, an illustration uh, from The Ghost, The Owl. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so you're, you're doing the illustration and then you're kind of describing why you're doing what you're doing. And there are so many great moments in this video where it's clear that you are doing something that's instinctive for you. And then it's like, you're realizing in the moment, oh, this will probably not make any sense to the person that's watching this. (laughs) Like, like one of my favorite moments is, um, you're talking about, Uh, how sometimes when you're using watercolor, the paper will bubble up. So you always like to keep a hairdryer on hand so that you can just blow it on the paper. And (laughs) I'm like, I know that's because Sarah at some point felt like she had ruined a painting and was like, how could I prevent this from happening in the future? I know a hairdryer. (laughs) Um, And another one of my favorite moments is you're drawing a branch and you want to color in the branch and you're like, oh, so then I just go for one of my favorite purples and there's no pause and there shouldn't be (laughs) <laughs> to explain how you got the idea that purple is actually, because, you know, almost anybody with a non-artistic mind, I think, would be like, I'm drawing a branch. It should be brown because trees are brown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're yeah. like, no, it, it's violet. Um, yes, yes. It's a purplish brown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess what I'm asking is, do you feel, is there a consistent way, regardless of the project that you are undertaking, that you start? Like in this video, you start and you're like, well, I always start with this pencil drawing and then mm-hmm. I build it up from there. Um, yep. So are, are there elements of your process that are always the same regardless of what you're doing or do you change it up every time? In the beginning, like it's usually the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's usually a pencil drawing. 
and then after that it's a free-for-all like I, okay. I don't draw most of the <laughs> the swirls and anything I just leave that up to kind of like what comes um, mm -hmm. as the piece is coming together um, also it's just I'm, I'm such a squirrel brain that like <laughs> I just immediately go to whatever catches my attention at that exact moment that needs working on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I started doing a lot of Procreate, um, like digital illustrations, and they have a record option. So you can record the process of a drawing being done. So oh, I'll, that's I'll post one sometime. Yeah, so it's really neat to see how something comes together, but it really shows like there's no consistency <laughs> once the main things get down there. It's like eyes, background, knee <laughs> you know like right. whatever i i see where it's like that needs to fit be fixed right now um and it's just kind of the same thing honestly with the hair dryer i used a hair dryer so it would speed up the process of drawing uh -huh. and, and painting a piece um like i i just this is why i don't do oil i don't have patience uh -huh. <laughs> when it comes to creating something uh -huh. like i want to get it done so that i can see it mm -hmm. like i i'm just so excited to to make an idea mm -hmm. there actually that video that you're watching was one of the hardest things i've ever done is trying to explain what i was doing okay while i was doing it yeah i'm glad so you said was, that to me this makes perfect sense but yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you said that because you can tell watching yeah. you that you're so bemused at yourself as you're explaining these things because it's so intuitive to you and it's like you're aware in the moment that there's no rational explanation for why you are. So, like there's one part yeah. where you talk about, um, you got to use this white to put in the eyes because otherwise they look like yeah. uh, stuffed animal eyes. But if you do this, then yeah. they really feel alive. And it's like the only way you could have reached that is by doing this 20,000 times. Yeah. But then you get to see it happen. You know, then when you do, you, the video shows you putting the white in the owl's eyes and all of a sudden it does look like they're looking at you. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Putting reflective like, light in an eye, like, that's what I, you know, would like any young artist to know too. Like, mm -hmm. gives your your characters so much more life to just put a little bit of, of light catching in there. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, my favorite part is drawing the eyes. So I mm. spend probably my most amount of time doing that. Part of the reason I'm curious about this and that why I found that video so interesting is you seem... It's very inspiring to watch somebody who has given themselves permission to follow their own organic creative process. Um, and I'm curious if there ever has come a time in your creative career where somebody tried to change the way you worked or tell you that it, you would get better results if you did things differently. Um, and if, that's, if that did happen, how did you navigate that moment? So I did a Bob's Burgers short story and mm -hmm. I drew it. It was a, about Gene. I think everything he touched turned into cheese or something. <laughs> so it was like a Midas touch thing. And so I got to draw that the way I wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really excited about it. It came out. It was kind of a pain in the ass project. Um, I had to redo a bunch of stuff and mm -hmm. it was all hand done. So it was extra hard to, oh my God. you know, fix, rescan, refix yeah. in Photoshop and everything. Um, and then the next project, they were like, yeah, but can you can you do this next story in the style of Maurice Sendak? And it's like, well, I'm not Maurice Sendak, yeah. you know? Like, so I it was the first project, like a, a bigger project for me at the time that I said no. And it was really weird to be like, mm -hmm. I know that would sell very well because like Maurice Sendak's amazing, but that's not me, you know? Like yeah. that that wouldn't feel right. I feel like I'd I would be completely just 
it would just be work. Like mm-hmm. there wouldn't be any fun in it at all. So, mm-hmm. and, and also like, I, I was so like, I'm, I'm really proud of, of my style, you know, like I've worked yeah. on it for a while and to like not be able to do that was like a weird concept for me. And, and I know like some artists will change styles a bit and I have to, to match certain, um, like my little pony, when I worked on that, yeah. you have to match a, a look to a certain point, sure. but IDW was awesome and recognized that each of the artists that they had hired, they hired them because they had a certain style. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just, you know, not always the case with every client. So, um, but uh, yeah, I've had I've had people, you know, be like, hey, do digital before I was ready to do digital. Mm-hmm. And that really put me off of doing digital for a long time where they're like, you know, you can it would be easier to change things. It would be mm-hmm. you know easier mm-hmm. to color match stuff. And I was just like, no, but I, I like my acrylic paints. This is what's working for me right now. And they don't give you that like 90s, like Photoshop look, which right. which I hated. Yeah, yeah. So that that to me was like what digital was for the longest time. Right. This kind so of I like flat, like sort of jagged. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Pixelated mm-hmm. and just gradients, like weird, mm-hmm. like computer generated gradients. Just like, oh, they pissed me off so much. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I just was resistant to it for so long, even though I knew it would get, you know, my projects done a lot faster and yeah. I could work. Um, while I was traveling to a convention instead of saving everything for when I got home and freaking out and not sleeping. So um, right. eventually I found my way Cut to Cut to it, midnight but... disease. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> nah, it's, but it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, like I'll be there eventually. I know it'll take me a little longer to get to where I want to be, but I'm doing illustrations for what I want to do right now. And yeah, it did take me a little bit longer than all, some of the other artists that I've... Sure because they got on the digital train a lot earlier than I did or switched to like, you know, 3D animation or computer generated stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, this is really silly. But there's um, ACDC is another one of my favorite okay. uh, awesome. bands. Uh-huh. <laughs> and there's a lyric, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. And like, I always just saw traditional art as like, you know, <laughs> that. So Sarah, I was, I was, that was my mantra for a while. <laughs> that is not... That is not silly at all. I think about that Sweet. quote all the time. It's so good. It's just like, it's such a good little kick in the ass if you need to like, you see everybody else kind of succeeding and you're like, what am I doing wrong? Like, but you're kind of still doing right by you. It, and yeah. you just stick that song on and you're like, okay, ha, I see. <laughs> I, it's the truth, that lyric. It yeah. is the truth. And something that's encoded in it that I think you're describing is... I think what they're saying is not just, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll, meaning have a career playing music. Yeah, it's a long right. way to the top if you want to rock and roll in your own voice. Like it's a yep. long way to the top to sound like yourself and have yep. that be something people crave. For sure. And it's just, you feel so like, oh man, it's just such a feeling of like self-accomplishment. And it's, it's just, it's awesome. I imagine a lot of people listening to this, we'll hear you tell that story about your client saying, we would like to presumably pay you a good bit of money to do this uh, next, right? yeah. next, yeah, <laughs> to do this next project yeah. in a style that right. you viscerally know would not be authentic and that you found the strength to say, nope, I can't do that. <laughs> Where do you think, I, I can imagine people hearing that and going, how how did she do that? Like I could oh never God, do that. Bob's Burgers, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> You're just gonna find somebody else to do it. Ah, I'm ruined forever. Right. <laughs> Where do you think you got slash get that uh, 
willpower, self-awareness, fearlessness from? Did, was that something somebody said to you once that you have, you know, advice you have, have taken or did, is it instinctive for you? Where does it come from? Oh, man. Uh, I guess like I've always, let's see, the first thing that comes to mind is all of my favorite characters in shows like Buffy was uh-huh. kind of an, a formative part of my mm-hmm. childhood slash teenagehood. Um, and she's a badass. Like she, that that was her. That's just, it's Buffy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, well, if I can just be like that, but with art <laughs> when I was a kid, yeah. you know, so that kind of, kind of stuck in. Um, but all my favorite artists, they seem like they found a weird, a weird, quote, 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 mm-hmm. style out of their time period. And maybe it wasn't, you know, appreciated at that time. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it was more appreciated after they died, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I really admired that sort of stick that they had. So like Tamara de Limpica, Remedios Vero is another one of my favorites too. Um, the other Mexican surrealists as well. So yeah, I guess I just kind of want to do right by my idols, I guess, you know? <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. Like, I would feel cheapened if I, I kind of gave that up. So it's like, if I were able to meet these artists in another life or wherever, like, for them to be like, hey, good job, <laughs> is what I would, would I don't know. It, it, the idea of that just makes me happy and yeah. keeps me inspired, I guess. Yeah. It, I, I feel like I hear you describing a spirit in some ways of defiance. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm stubborn and kind of, yeah. <laughs> I guess I just, growing up, you know, would see things that were the norm and be like, mm-hmm. why though? But why? I remember when I was a kid too, in I think it was first or third grade for some reason, those numbers keep coming up, but um, they told us to draw a house. It's pretty simple. But I drew a house with like 30 windows on it. And the teacher was like, no, that's not right. And I was like, but why? Right, right. <laughs> I know, like, there was no criteria. It was just draw a, draw a house. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the picture that one was a very standard looking house with like the four windows and a little door in the front and all that stuff. Boring. And yeah. And I was just like, okay, well, great. Like, but why is that the right way? Well, how does this this but why uh, yeah. spirit and and this this idea you talked about earlier in the conversation of inviting people to like look at death a little bit differently? Yeah, those strike me as both very related to you have this this very poignant and thought provoking idea on your website of you are ten generations removed from a woman named Margaret Scott. Yeah, who yeah. who is Margaret Scott and what role does her presence play in your work and your life? Sure. Uh, so Margaret Scott is one of the victims of the Salem witch trial. Um, she was hanged on September 22nd, 1692, I believe. So she was mm-hmm. like one of the last people to be hanged. Um, basically because she was an old lady who was asking for wood one too many times from her neighbor. And he decided to be a real asshole and hmm. um, take care of her in the worst way possible. And that was to, you know... Oh, my God. Lie that she was a witch because she was making his cows die and stand up weird and all these weird bullshit things. My mom's super into genealogy, so she mm-hmm. found that out. So uh, I moved to Salem a few years ago. I've since moved out. I'd love to get back. Um, mm-hmm. But they have a memorial in the middle of the town 
uh, and there are stones set into a wall for each of the witch trial victims. And Margaret's got one. So, you know, I would go and visit her or her stone every once in a while because we don't know where she's buried. Nobody, mm-hmm. um, no, nobody knows. Yeah, nobody knows where she's buried. So that stone is basically her headstone, mm-hmm. I guess. So mm-hmm. uh, my mom and I would go and leave like a flower on there. We would take like the tour before I moved there and and uh, tell people like, oh yeah, that's my gra- that's our our grandma right there, <laughs> you know. And it was kind of this. It was a really interesting connection to be related to somebody who went through that but it would it would also be kind of neat to be walking back from a bar at night in Salem thinking like oh maybe I'll go say hi to grandma or something yeah, you know yeah. so I'd walk by go to her stone and touch it and be like hi what's up grandma you know, uh, <laughs> all right drunkenly stumble back to my apartment <laughs> yeah, yeah um but yeah it's, it's just a it's a neat kind of connection that same with like cleaning the gravestones like you kind of connect to that that person you're cleaning their stone for and it was you know I don't have a stone to clean for for Margaret and I wish I did so it's like I'm always trying to put her name out there too because she's not one of the well-known victims you know she's she's kind of one of the other uh, others (laughs) you know that gets listed um so I'd like to do my part in you know saying her name and and saying the reason why she was convicted which is a complete and utter it's a travesty. It's stupid. It, yes, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> well, perhaps there's a way in which, you know, by by keeping a spirit of defiance and putting 30 yeah. windows on a house. Yeah. Because why not? I am very much lucky that I live in a different time than she did because I would absolutely be up there with her probably yeah. <laughs> with, with the way I operate. You get both sides. Like, I'm unfortunately somewhat tangentially related to George W. Bush, too. And it's not oh, dear. my... Yeah favorite thing in the world <laughs> but there's nothing i can do about it except you're a better painter than he is <laughs> thank you thank you yeah i've worked on painting feet so much longer than he has <laughs> also a better person i would i would yes hope. yes um, i yeah. uh, i think we can confidently state that uh on the thank midnight you. disease <laughs> thank you all right so last question i like to ask people and I'm, it's particularly exciting to ask you this question because you've done it already i think four times on uh, during the interview is i always like to ask people if they have an artistic mantra um and yeah. you've thrown out a few of them uh over the course of our conversation that you've had over time um so do you do you have one that you haven't mentioned yet or that yeah. you okay what is it yeah actually you know it just uh, just came to mind um so it's not even related to art it's just kind of a general mantra I have. Um, and I can sound so weird. Um, I came up with it when I visited Easter Island and I was walking uh-huh. on the side of a volcano <laughs> and I was feeling very confident and very proud in myself that I had made it there. Like it was a place I'd always wanted to go. But uh, yeah, I remember my last day, my last full day there walking around this volcano and and I was walking very straight very straight like shoulders back feeling very confident and I was thinking like strength grace warrior wolf and I just kind of kept thinking strength grace warrior wolf because that year I had done a bunch of like shamanic meditation classes Mm -hmm. and it was like Mm -hmm. a wolf themed kind of thing so that had kind of been fresh in my brain um and so anytime I was at a convention or walking through a group of people and I was feeling maybe a little self-conscious I would just kind of repeat that 
in my head. And I would also imagine myself wearing like a cape. And when you think of yourself wearing a cape, you can only kind of stand <laughs> straight. And so I would That's be saying that point. in my head, right? So try it though. Like try it. Walk around in public and think you have a cape on and you feel you kind of straighten up a little bit. I would suggest anybody kind of come up with a mantra, meditate on it, and it really, really helps, especially if you're, you know, you have anxiety issues or your confidence isn't working for you that day. Sarah, you have given me so many beautiful things to reflect on after this conversation. Thank Thank you you so (laughs) much for doing this. Of course. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. This has been great. I feel like I've learned a lot about myself, and you really helped me kind of think of things a certain way that I wasn't before. So, Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. The Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Sarah Richard for joining me on the show today. I mentioned Sarah's tarot deck at the beginning of the show. It's called Midnight Magic. If oracle cards are more your thing, she has one of those as well. It's called The Women of Myth. And I would also highly recommend The Dead Handbook, which is a book that she wrote and illustrated. And it's a book where she uh, explores very deeply the ideas about death that she and I talked about in this conversation. The Dead Handbook is a memorial to mortality, as she describes it, and the ancestral liaison with death through quiet and sweetly macabre short stories. Links to all of this, of course, are in the show notes. And if you haven't already, please take 30 seconds and give our show a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference when it comes to more people finding the show. We will be back next week with another great conversation. Thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. Until then, keep driving, Midnight Cruisers.